0: Brothers and sisters, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great opportunity we have to gather together this morning. May we be vulnerable to your Spirit's work in our own lives as we reflect upon the necessity of following the way of Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. The hostility of the modern world towards traditional Christian values is on the rise. The ability to save an unborn infant's life over the parent's choice to terminate the pregnancy is vanishing. The freedom of speech, particularly religious freedom, has little voice in the marketplace today. To oppose one's ability to express their inner sexual self is becoming intolerable in our society. The victory of the sexual revolution of the 1960s has now evolved into the transgender revolution. The lines between male and female are becoming blurred. Unisex toilets and uniforms are becoming the norm. Refusing to call someone by their preferred pronoun, it, them or they, is considered bigotry. Legal protection for children undertaking transgender surgery is now being celebrated with this Influx of social change, the next step is to protect non-monogamous relationships without any discrimination. This will involve the legal protection for those in a relationship with more than two people at the expense of religious freedom. For the sake of radical inclusiveness, all sexual taboos will be overturned. This will ultimately pay the way for nihilism. Nihilism literally means nothingism. It is the rejection of all religious and moral principles. The collapse of traditional values will lead to an incredibly depressed, hopeless, disordered world, a humanity with little authority outside of the inner, emotive, unrestrained self. And sadly, it's already happening. If you look at most Australians today, they are more depressed than those who lived a generation ago, two generations ago, maybe even more depressed than those who grew up in the Great Depression. While we are living like kings, we are more depressed than ever. In this future world, lukewarm, nominal Christianity, faith on the fence will die out Atheism or no faith will dominate nationwide surveys and we're already seeing that happen as less and less people identify with the Christian faith in our country. Special religious education will become non-existent, yet despite all these things, the biblical church will indeed survive. I'm optimistic of that. However, they will only survive as an oppressed minority of intolerable rebels on the fringes of society. Welcome to the future. While I might sound cynical today, I'm simply alerting us to the political tsunami that is looming. The truth is that the gospel is increasingly under fire. The ability to live by its core ethical principles is fading away. Traditional values are being banned on mainstream media. The barbarians of our culture are quickly demolishing the faith, the family, and whatever is in the way of our sexual freedom. If we desire to guard the gospel from this tidal wave ahead of us, we need to change our tactics. We need to Own the reality that what we are doing now as Christians is not working. Rather than spending all our energy and resources on fighting the unwinnable culture war, we should invest our energy into, I believe, building communities and networks of resistance that can overcome this dark age which is ahead of us. We need to form deep systems in which our holy life can flourish and survive amid the tsunami of nihilism. We need a strategy that draws on the authority of the biblical scriptures, the biblical canon, and the wisdom of the ancient church. We need to embrace living in exile as citizens of heaven and form a vibrant counterculture. I love what Rod Redner says on this point. If we are going to be for the world as Christ meant for us to be, we are going to have to spend more time away from the world in deep prayer and substantial spiritual training. Just as Jesus retreated to the desert to pray before ministering to the people, we cannot give the world what we do not have. And so my question is this. How are you preparing for this world, this future world, where the Christian voice will be forced to be on the fringes. Well, if the world is becoming increasingly disordered, our act of resistance is to be people who establish order. In a sense, this is the call of our lives. The good order of God established in creation has been disrupted by the fall of humanity. Due to our sin, we have become lawless, living by our own unrestrained self. Paul the Apostle says this in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 25. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. But as blood-washed sinners redeemed into the image of Christ, being set free to live a new life in Christ, we're now called to re-establish this order, which was broken when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And this brings great pleasure to God. Paul says, I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. God brings pleasure when he sees God's people, his people, living ordered lives in Christ Jesus. But where do we start? To become people of order, many modern pastors are learning from our past church tradition. Many are turning to the Benedictine monks, believe it or not. They turn to them because they are experts in establishing order. After the fall of Rome in the late 6th century, these monks withdrew from society and formed countercultural communities. And to obtain order amid the chaos of barbarianism, which was destroying Rome, these Benedictines created what is typically called a rule of life. A rule of life is an intentional plan of spiritual disciplines that serves as a training program to shape our attitudes and behaviors towards love of God and our neighbor. And so by living an ordered rule of life, the beauty of God was seen in the stability of these monks. In fact, ordering according to St. Benedict's rule, the monks were required to take a vow of stability. By living rooted, stable lives. They became these stable trees planted by streams of water, producing spiritual fruit and season. And since they were so different to the world around them, because of their stability, the culture of anarchy was challenged by their counter-cultural lifestyle. And it challenges for a reason. According to our present culture, success is being free from all commitments. Rod Redner says, instead of believing that structure is good and the duties to home and family lead us to live rightly, people today have been tricked into believing that maximising individual happiness should be the goal of life. The villain of St. Benedict's rule is the hero of our culture. Think about it for a moment. Our culture reclaims, do what makes you happy don't let anyone stop you. Be yourself. The irony of this unrestrained individualism is that it erodes our freedom in Christ. Christian freedom means conforming ourselves to the order of Jesus. Peter the Apostle says, live as free Free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil, live as servants of God. And so what we see here is that being free men is being servants of God. Freedom is found in our servitude to Christ. Since the way of Jesus is perfect, the stability that flows from being his servants anchor us and give us the freedom we groan for. Order helps us to find our true source of joy, which comes from God. And so here's my point in all of this. Establishing establishing rules that create order will help us thrive in a world of disorder. By establishing a stable rule of life as a church family, we will have lives that will indeed outwit and outlast the looming social anarchy pressure to come. If we refuse to change our tact, we'll find ourselves blown out to sea with no gospel to stand on at all. It is therefore essential. The church must create an order of living that enables the sacred order of Christ to thrive for generations to come. As I live my Christian life, I'm not only thinking about myself, I'm thinking about three more generations to come after me, five more generations to come after me. And I think that's how we need to think as Christians Are what we are doing now, setting our children and their children up for success, Or are we setting them up for failure? Where do we start when establishing order? That's my next question. Where do we start when establishing order? Well, we begin to establish order by becoming who we are called to be, apprentices of Jesus. John Mark Comer says this, Apprentices of Jesus order their lives around three essential goals. Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. That is our calling as Christians, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. In other words, to overcome disorder in our world... It's critical that our lives are patterned deeply after Christ. When people look at our lives, they should say, that looks like Jesus. And so in our new teaching series, Be Still, we will therefore look to the lifestyle of Jesus. We will look particularly at his life of solitude, prayer, rest, and community. These practices, which are dominated by prayer, will give us order and peace for everyday life, despite the chaos of our modern world. As we establish this simple rule of life, our church will become a radical counterculture, or dare I say, monastery. Through our apprenticeship to Jesus, we will offer our divided world a richer, and better alternative. And the practice of solitude is where our counterculture begins. But why should we practice solitude? Well, the simplest answer is because Jesus practiced it. But I'd like to look at the why with you as well. Why should we practice solitude? There's a deeper why here. But before we explore that why, let's look to Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 37. It says... Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. The step towards solitude is the step to withdrawal, to departure. This departure required Jesus to sacrifice Things, sleep, comfort. He rose early in the morning and ventured to a solitary place. This place was a place of isolation and silence, a place without any distractions or disruptions. This place may have been a garden, a mountain, beside the sea, or in the desert. For us, it could be a chair in our home, a quiet cafe, a park bench. Whatever he went to, wherever he went that morning, Jesus decided to quieten his soul before God, to deeply connect with him through prayer, to enjoy a rich intimacy with the one who sustained him. Catherine Doherty explains the purpose of this solitude practice. She says, True silence is the search of man for God. True silence is a suspension bridge that a soul in love with God builds To cross the dark, frightening gullies of its own mind, the strange chasms of temptation, the depthless cliff of its own fears that obstruct its way to God. And so, solitude creates an environment where our soul can draw closer to God. For this reason, solitude is important. Enjoying intimacy with God is the great gift of the gospel. And the truth is, if we never stop, slow down, and simply pray, our mind, our heart, Heart, our body, our soul will be only filled with ourselves, or more accurately put, the destructive white noise of our disordered worlds. If our lives are full of busyness, endless activity, we make ourselves incredibly weak, disconnected from God. And so, the first step in regaining strength in God is by creating a space of solitude to simply think and pray. To be still in the silence with God. Let me share something quite raw with you. Last summer, I went away to stop, reflect, and commune with God. In this time, I realized that in my fast paced, achievement centered mindset, I was left exhausted, unstable. Spiritually depleted, saying I'm so busy became a statement of pride. It was not until I entered into solitude, just me and God, that I identified a problem. I was isolating God through my busyness. I then tried to hide this reality with television, books, wandering the streets, calling home, Yet after a while, I stopped hiding. The shame was intense. In the stillness of solitude, I then recognised my problem. The world was making me one of their own. I was becoming an autonomous, freely choosing individual, finding meaning in no one but myself. In solitude, God then detoxed my soul. He crushed my idol of self-dependence. In the silence, in the solitude, I was set free from the inner mess that I was experiencing in that moment. Ruth Barton explains this in her book, Invitation to Silence and Solitude. In solitude, God begins to free us from our bondage to human expectations. From there, we experience God as our ultimate reality, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. In solitude, our thoughts and our mind, our will and our desires are reoriented, God would, so we become less and less attracted by external forces and can be more deeply responsive to God. Solitude is therefore a powerful practice for today. It helps us to strip ourselves from the external world around us that seeks to form us so that we can be formed by the ultimate being, God our Father. Solitude enables us to withdraw from a world of chaos to draw close to the God of great order. There in the silence of prayer, we then abandon our desire to control ourselves. Through our self-denial, God then takes control of us. In the silence, our divine physician God performs deep spiritual surgery on us, on our soul. The surgery is getting close to the root of the stuff inside of us that prevents us from seeing and hearing the gospel, as Carl Irico says. Then once the surgery is completed, the shackles of our burdens are released. We then are ready to re-enter the world. Indeed, we are ready to hear the voice of the disciples. Everyone is looking for you, Jesus. Everyone is looking for you. We're ready to be disrupted by our family. I imagine Evelyn coming into my bedroom. Dad, I'm hungry. Feed me. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to feed you now. I've been refreshed by the Lord. I've been energized by the Lord. I am ready to go out and serve you. Solitude should actually energize us for service, for mission. It should give us a deep joy to serve our family. Solitude must always lead us back to our family, our friends, our responsibilities. Catherine Doherty says, This silence then will break forth in charity that overflows in the service of the neighbour without cost, counting the cost. It will witness to Christ anywhere always. Availability will become a delight and easy. Hospitality will be deep and real. For a silent heart is a loving heart. And a loving heart is a place of care to the world. Solitude should cause us to re-enter the world with joy and service, ready to bring chaos back into order. So how can we practice solitude? While it might take a few days, a few weeks, a few months to implement, consider following these six steps. Firstly, Identify the space and time in your life for solitude. Where will you do solitude? What time of the day will you do solitude? Second, determine the length of time in solitude. How long will you stay enjoying intimacy with God? Third, settle into a quiet, comfortable position Too often we have things on our mind. We're so busy, we're thinking about the next thing that we need to do. By getting comfortable, we are more prone to direct our focus to God. Fourth, express your openness and desire for God. Talk to God like a child. Let him know your concerns. Five, Enjoy the presence of God at work within you. Yes, enjoy his presence as he does deep surgery on your soul, bringing you the healing that you desire or don't know that you desire. Sixth, conclude solitude with a prayer of gratitude. Make sure that you give thanks for this time well spent with God that will nourish you for more service. And then seventh, Be ready to hear the voice of the world. Ask, where are you? Be ready to go out and do the ministry that God has called you to partake in. As you practice these steps, remember that solitude must begin, however, with the expectation of encountering God. Not a God of disorder, but the God of peace, as Paul says. And as you encounter God, may you be filled with joy. God is doing a great work in you. Amen.